glad you guys came here on this Labor Day and and um, and probably if you knew the sermon title before you came in, maybe you were thinking, oh boy, I don't know if I want to sit through this one. Uh, anybody who asks the question, what happens five minutes after you die, uh, kind of makes me a little nervous. And uh, if you're like I am, there probably was a time when if somebody said that, I really wouldn't know the answer at all. But I know that over time, God's uh, love has just uh, drawn a lot of us into his presence and given us a piece about that question. And if we could ever share that piece about that question uh, with any of you, we certainly would love to do that. Uh, But for the purposes of this morning, I I do want to dig into something that uh, no one really talks about that much, partly because there's not a lot of information about that. Uh, what happens uh, five minutes after we die? Um, even the Bible gives us just a little bit of information, just enough to whet our appetite if we're a follower of the Lord, and enough to sort of make us a little, little apprehensive um, if we're not. And it's not God's desire to make us anxious as much as it is to bring his peace upon each of our lives. Uh, however, the only way that we can experience that is um, knowing him and knowing his son uh, has made it all possible. Uh, and that really is the goal for the sermon today. But as we get into it, um, I know many of us probably drove past a cemetery whenever we came here. And uh, my kids used to, um, for some reason, hold their breath when they went past the cemetery. I never really understood why. Any, any of you ever hear of that before? Okay, maybe it's a weird Illinois thing that, that, that caught on in junior high or something. I was hoping to resolve that question, but I guess that will linger on until uh, all things are made, made known. But uh, the reality of the cemetery is the fact that um, there are people who have been on the earth, just like you and I, who uh, are now represented by tombstones as their bodies are, are laid to rest there. And the question for some people is, um, you know, what is happening to uh, the souls or the spirits of those people as uh, they've gone on. And when we look at scripture, uh, we know Jesus actually had to address this very matter. But he did it with the purpose of not so much describing in detail what's going on, but giving us a sense of what we need to do to prepare to be there. And if you have your message notes with you, I'd like for us to take a look for a minute uh, at your life and mine, as it's described in the book of James. It has uh, uh, a lot of very practical sayings about, um, about our lives here on earth and points that uh, are made uh, very succinctly about how we should live. Uh, one of them is just a friendly reminder that our lives are very short. Uh, he describes it in 414 as um, uh, our life is just a mist that appears for a little while and then it's gone. As I was driving to to work this morning, I drove up uh, Painter Road up the hill uh, on that end of town and uh, had to turn my windshield wipers on because the mist was so intense that I couldn't see all the crazy wildlife on that road in the morning and I didn't want to hit a deer or a raccoon or a possum or a turkey or anything else that usually jumps out in front of me. Uh, and then uh, it was gone and I'm sure if you drive there now it's gone and when God looks at our lives he says it's just very short because eternity is very very long and you have to have a perspective on that if you're gonna uh, if you're gonna make it worthwhile and some people do have perspectives on 
on what's going to happen, and they'll even write them on their tombstones. Uh, a couple of them that I'd like to, uh, I'd like to refer to is uh, one uh, tombstone has written on it, Here lies the body of Jonathan Blake. He stepped on the gas instead of the brake. And that's just a word of caution for you beginning drivers out there, if there's any people that got their permit. Uh, the gas pedal and the brake pedal can do significant uh, harm or good depending on how you exercise that. And in his case, uh, it was uh, a PSA. But hopefully your life is more than just a PSA uh, to the rest of the world when you're gone. It actually has a lot more significance. But there are some people who feel like there is no God. And as a result of that, they live their lives just assuming that what each day brings is um, just an opportunity for me versus the world or me looking for opportunities in the world and then we're done and we're gone. And so an atheist uh, had this uh, epitaph which said um, he was all dressed up and no place to go as his Christian family was looking at him saying, you know, your atheism has got you there. You have no destination, no hope, no purpose. And the reality is it's very sad to imagine going through life as ones who are created in God's image and likeness and not being able to tune in to the fact that God has something special that he's destined us for. And one of the most heartbreaking things that God has had to wrestle with is just having to contend with each of our wills. We are very strong-willed people, and sometimes we're quick to speak and slow to listen, as James even says in another part of his book. And as God is trying to communicate to us over and over and over just how much he wants us to be a part of his family forever, over and over and over, many of us have resisted uh, his plea. And in the book of Luke, there's there's an interesting story uh, in chapter 16 of uh, this very thing happening between Jesus and people that he cared about, but were very stubborn in their willingness to hear what he had to say, so much so that uh, they began to resent his presence and his words, and they increasingly tried to push him away. And this group of people were religious leaders that the Bible describes as Pharisees. Uh, they are persons responsible for teaching other people about the laws of God. And yet Jesus, when he looked at him square in the eye, he said, You're very good at being professional teachers, but the problem is your heart is not in in a place that uh, you say it is. And like anyone, uh, we're all sort of repulsed by the inauthenticity of religious leaders. Matter of fact, it's probably a reason why many millennials don't go to church is they see that hypocrisy between what's projected in a religious environment and what they see uh, demonstrated behaviorally in a, in a world environment, and they're like, we don't want any of that. And Jesus saw just how much that was turning people off, and so his agenda with this group of people wasn't just he was concerned about their hearts, but it was also he was concerned about the way that their lifestyle was turning people away from the Lord. And that's why he said what we're getting ready to hear from Luke 16. In it, uh, if you want to turn your, your message notes over and look at the backside, uh, I wanted to just take a second to, to tell you what he told them. And then I want to take that information uh, for the remainder of our time together 
and allow it to kind of soak in so that we can, uh, we can be built up through it. So Jesus said to the Pharisees over here and the other people who were saying, we like Jesus, he's got the right ideas and he has the right attitude and he embodies everything perfectly, we're with him. And they're looking at the Pharisees and they're saying, we're not so sure about those guys. And Jesus is trying to bring all of this into, into proper order by encouraging those who were willing to follow and really admonishing those who weren't. So he tells both sides this story. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and in fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And then the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. And he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here And you are in agony. The tables have turned. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, But but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, If they didn't listen to Moses and the prophets... They're not going to be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And as Jesus said this, and they were beginning to hear what he was uh, conveying to them, they're like, oh yeah, we've heard this story before, because it is a story that was told uh, on several occasions before in, in writings that precede the Gospels. But what Jesus did with the story was something that they did not expect and it probably challenged a lot of assumptions that they had about what happens five minutes after each of us dies. And it was simply this. If somebody died in, um, in, in the story as it was told, and they were in torment, and they were asking the person who had the power to, 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 to at least let them go back for a little while and tell concerned parties what they've seen so that they can turn their lives around. Oftentimes the story was told in that way so that those who needed to hear would get the point and bring their lives correct. And then as the story's told, that person would go back to the abode of the dead. What Jesus did was take the story and turn it a little bit sideways and inform them that though that myth has some merit, it's not entirely true because once you die, that's the end. 
There is no redo, there is no undo, there is no reset, there is no, sorry, there is no, uh, uh, there, the, I, I would make a very bad hellfire and brimstone pastor. Uh, that's what makes this passage challenging for me because I, I certainly uh, don't want to see anybody to go into a place of torment. However, the Bible does describe this aspect of what our destiny might be if God isn't part of the equation of our lives. And as, uh, as, as Jesus is telling the story, there is no command quit there is no there's nothing it's just done and if that truly is the case which is one of the reasons why i preach the gospel then we need to pay attention to how this affects our lives in the here and now and if you have your message notes um, what i want to do is just look at three realities that are described in this story that um, will help us along the way if we're, if we're asking the question, what does happen in that five-minute period when our body basically had said, um, I've given up the spirit that inhabited me, and that spirit, which would be the embodiment of our personality and who we are, goes on. Um, the first thing that I want you to know is that we will be completely aware. We will know. It won't be just like our body is no longer functioning, and so I'm not aware. No. Your spirit will be completely aware. As Jesus described this, he's telling them, you'll know. And matter of fact, for some people, it'll actually be an awareness that is a very positive thing. But on the other side, it will be an awareness that is not so great. And if you can imagine that awareness and what that means, then there are other thoughts that follow. And this is what I think would happen if a person like one of us were to experience that moment. And we all will at one point, but it's uh, some of us sooner than later, and we never know the time, and that's why it's so critical to get our minds wrapped around this. So the second thing that you need to be aware of uh, is this, and we'll skip over the graphic, and I'll go back to it after this one. And that is, uh, if you are a follower of, of Christ, if you're a member of God's family, and you are a person who has aligned your life with God. And I would just say anyone who's um, identified with him in death, burial, uh, and resurrection through baptism, like we saw Aurelia do a few weeks ago, um, and, and you stay true to, 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 your, to your allegiance to Christ, you have nothing to worry about. And there are reports about people dying and saying, I just felt overwhelmed with love. And then uh, maybe the Lord said, it's not time. And they go back. But I, I sense that the, the, the description based on the biblical story and the description of people who've had near-death experiences and pretty much everything in between is this. If you're going to be with God because you've chosen to go to be with God through who you know him to be through Christ, then you'll be overwhelmed with gratitude. The burden that you had in this, in this, in this mortal body will no longer be uh, something that you have to shoulder. The pain that you have as you get older, uh, like I, I experienced to some degree, that's not on the table anymore. You'll have a sense not only of the lack of those things, but it'll be even greater to know that you're now in the, in the, in the presence of the glory of God in heaven. And... Lazarus, interestingly enough, in this life, experienced hell on earth. 
And there was a very wealthy person who was well-resourced who saw him every day and said, I really don't care about you or your problems. You're just like all the other people that are messed up in this world. At least I got my act together and I've, I've, I've made myself wealthy and my life is good. But the irony of the story is that the rich guy had his priorities completely out of whack and his life was all messed up. And the poor guy who was dependent, so dependent on God for basic needs, now was experiencing what the rich guy thought he had. And that's why it's a cautionary tale for you and I because... The, the beggar, Lazarus, was just filled with gratitude because now the struggle that he faced every day in life and the competition that people had for the things that uh, people needed and his inability to win those races and how he felt just so shut out and so dejected and, and really discounted by society. And now where does he find himself? but in the arms of the very father of the family of God, Abraham. The Bible tells a story that describes Abraham being a key person in the equation because he was called to bless the nations and through his offspring, all the nations would be blessed and his offspring ultimately was Jesus who was the perfect child of Abraham and embodied everything necessary for the children of God to um, uh, comply with the obedience of God. In his perfection, he died on a cross for us so that we could become part of that family experience that God initiated through Abraham. And here Lazarus is saying, I am part of this family. But interestingly enough, he uses the word family in this text to describe the rich guy. The rich guy was part of the family too. He was a member but he was a member not in good standing because the rich guy really didn't care about God or the things of God. He was biologically part of the family. But as far as his spiritual life goes, he was completely disconnected and disengaged. And God says, I'm going to turn the table. I'm going to say that biology really doesn't mean anything here. What means something here is really your spiritual life and how connected you are to God. And that, in the end, is all that matters. And the perfect son of Abraham made that possible through a bloodstained cross. And he's calling us into that family to share that destiny that we have with him forever. And for those of us who have claimed that promise, we know our earthly struggle is over and we are just absolutely filled with gratitude knowing that we are now moving into the next chapter. That's why funerals for me as a pastor are very easy for believers if the believer is ready to go. It's just a celebration. Sure, we'll miss them. We'll have to adapt to the change. But we know that uh, they're now moving on. But for people that don't believe and I'm called to do a funeral and I have to describe to them these things, it's just crickets. Everyone is just confused and anxious and uncertain and disengaged from God and his peace and they are killed captive by the bondage of evil and it can be rich or poor alike and Jesus is looking at rich Pharisees and he's saying this is you and you are that guy and as they're hearing it when that day comes when you decide that you will reject the son of God you will be so filled with regret for the missed opportunity that you had to make your heart right with God through me that that's, that's just going to overwhelm you so much. 
And for you and I, uh, we have this sense that, yeah, uh, I am so grateful that I am part of God's family, and I know I'm not perfect, and we certainly are not. And God's grace is sufficient where we lack that it enables this process to occur. And that is what God is trying to shout out to the world. I love you so much. But some of you are not getting it. And I say it over and over and over. And yet it just keeps flying past you. And this frustrated Jesus to no end. Because some of them just refused to hear it. Until it was too late. And then the regret overshadowed them. And maybe for us, we are looking at this rich guy and we're saying, well, I'm glad that's not me. But the one thing that the rich guy did for the first time in his existence, not his life, but his existence was he realized that his brothers were in trouble. That his brothers needed to hear something that would change the destiny of their lives, which was headed right towards where he landed. And he said, and he appealed to Abraham, please let me go tell them so that they can know. And as Abraham heard these words, he said, we've been telling them over and over and over and they have not listened. And if I tell them again, they're not going to listen anymore. Even if someone, let's say someone does rise from the dead, they're still not going to believe. And Jesus just read their hearts. And he was heartbroken by their resistance to what they were headed into. If you've had children, you've seen this happen a number of times. You tell them not to do something and they do it and then all of a sudden there's a, there's a bike crashing into a tree or um, you know, there's a broken glass and a cut hand or there's a, uh, a kid driving a car while texting and there all of a sudden is an accident. And over and over, we try to remind one another the things that can happen because we've either, either experienced the pain of it ourselves or we know, that we know, the, we know the logical outcome. <clears throat> and Jesus is trying to appeal to all of our hearts to not miss any, miss any opportunities. He wanted to tell his family what was going on. He was all of a sudden an evangelist. And yet, Abraham said that the window's closed. The trains left the station. I could just go on with corny metaphors all day long, but you get the point. And really, what is going on here? What is it that happens five minutes after we die? And where is that headed? And so let's just zoom out and look at the big picture for a minute, if we can. And, and let's take a look at uh, the graphic that, um, that we have regarding that. If you look at the graphic behind me, this is kind of what the Bible says is going on. It doesn't, it doesn't systematically describe it, but it describes enough of it for us to, to piece it together pretty, 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 uh, pretty clearly. And that is uh, when we die, our spirits go in one of two places. If we are part of the family of God... In the sense that we are spiritually connected to God as Christ has made possible or Abraham uh, believed God through faith and it was credited to him as righteousness and everyone in between. Paradise is really that place that we go when we die. It's, uh, I guess it's an aspect of heaven where people who are waiting for the unfolding of things that are yet to come go and reside. 
And the reason paradise is used as a descriptor is because in the Old Testament and in the Babylonian um, uh, uh, sort of era, uh, there were these beautiful hanging gardens and all of these lovely botanical um, um, venues that you could go to. And they would call these places paradise because they were so peaceful and so tranquil and so beautiful. And so the Bible kind of captures that, and people thought of it in that manner. And when the thief on the cross was languishing there next to Jesus and getting ready to um, meet his five minutes, he looked over at Jesus and um, he said, have mercy on me, and uh, when you enter your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus told him, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And so there is a place where we go when we die, where our spirits go because our bodies are still here. And then there's a place where people go that's separate. And there's a chasm that bridges the two. And that place is not a place that's pleasant because all the people that are there, all the souls that are there, are the ones that have rejected God. Have you ever been around people that have just been, have, have, have not had God in their lives or have been very adamant about not having God in their lives? And have you ever tried to do community with them? You know, try to get along with them? Try to see eye to eye with them? There's just so much chaos and so much dysfunctionality that that's the environment that they're going to. And it isn't a place that God is choosing to send them to. It's a place that by their own design, they wind up at. It is a place where God says, we've got to put people who are not fit for the new creation because they don't want to be part of the new creation because they've rejected what I've been saying on and on and on for so long. But this is where they go. And then eventually there is a resurrection. When God is done with everything here on earth, he's going to call us up out of the grave in that sense. And there's going to be a judgment. And God's going to just scrutinize each of our lives, both godly and ungodly alike. And for the ungodly people, it's a scrutiny that has no hope and no grace and no love. It's a scrutiny that simply says, these are the things that make up your life. This is my new creation that I'm calling people to be a part of. And it appears to me that your life has no interest in the God of that new creation. And your life has no really interest in living in a way that's fit for that new creation. Because you see, have you ever gotten a new job and you feel, you feel good about the job because... Well, you know, it's what you want to do. It's what you've been trained to do. And there's a few people that you know there that you like that are kind of fun. And there's sort of a honeymoon period. And you're thinking, life is just good. And if you've ever had one of those jobs, you know pretty soon the honeymoon is going to end. Because eventually, the dark side comes up, right? And then a person, you know, is talking about another person behind another person's back. Or a person is doing things their own way that's not supporting the overall emphasis of what they're trying to accomplish together. And the list just goes on and on and on and can get extremely toxic and ugly. And I think, why would I want to be in this place? It seems so good initially, but now it's just so messed up. God, why did you put me here? And God's saying... A couple of things. Maybe so you can be salt and light to those people. Maybe God is saying, I put you there because I want to remind you of what life is like together with people who 
are not aligned with my heart and my will, my purpose, who are not expressing through their beautiful personalities as they're redeemed in Christ all of the characteristics that God uniquely has given us. They're not walking into the full humanity that God made them to be. And the only way I can create that environment for you to go and to work and play and do everything that is right and good about life is to have hearts that want to be there, that are in agreement that that's the place that we want to be, and have the desire to sort through everything in their life that's not fit for being there forever. And when we are there, God says, there will be no more evil, there will be no more sin, there will be no more death. And so when we're judged... This is my view, and, and, and you know, there are several uh, people that also subscribe to this. This is how I think the judgment will work. I think we'll stand before the Lord, and I think he's going to look at everything going on in our life, and he's going to see those things that are out of sync with his purpose for that destiny. And he's going to have us look at those things very carefully. And he's going to have us name them, and then repent of them, And then in that new creation, he's going to empower us in such a way that we never go back to them. And so, my advice to you, do what you can to keep your list short. Some of us may be there a very long time. Because there's a lot of stuff we've got to name and say, yeah, that's not right, God. I, I, I completely turn away from that forever, and I mean it this time. And I think the judgment is just a scrutiny of those things in our lives that are not fit to be with him forever. And I believe that God's already working on us now. That he's convicting us of that and he's saying, get rid of that. You don't need that. Because I've got so much more better things to put in there that will bring you joy that that cannot offer. And so that is my personal view of the judgment. And as God takes us to that place, he has two destinies for people that are uh, either in line with his purposes or not. And those who are fit for the new creation will experience that day in Revelation 21 and 22 that says heaven and earth just came together and everything about heaven is now uh, enmeshed with everything in earth and it is the place that God originally designed for us to be a part of to begin with. And God is saying to you and I, I want you to be with me forever. And you may be saying, boy, I don't think I got too many things going on in my life where that could ever happen. But I want to tell you something. Whatever it is, God's grace is sufficient to cover it. And God doesn't want you to just be that you know, that person who says, I'm, I'm a Christian here, but not out there. I'm somebody else. He wants you to be an integrated person. So he wants you to keep working on stuff. You're never going to get over everything that's wrong in your life. But God says, I just want you to allow me to disciple you into a new way of living and a new way of being. Some people say, I'd never go to church because the roof would call, fall in or the or lightning would strike, and on and on. And I want to tell them, no, the church is here for you. God loves you that much. He wants to keep you from things that are not good for your destiny, and he wants to include you, more importantly, in something that is so special. 
And we're here to, to help you come to that awareness and then to be a church family that comes alongside you and helps you to journey along the way as we do that as his family together. And God is looking right now at our hearts and he's saying, where are you at? Where are you at with this stuff? And you're looking at yourself and saying, I'm not good enough. I, I want to tell you, it's not, it's not what you know or what you do. It is who you know. How do I know that? Is my son Christian here? <laughs> okay. Do I have permission to tell a story on you? Okay, all right, good. So Christian is doing exactly what I was doing when I was his age, and that is uh, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, and he's coming home from uh, OSU uh, the other evening because we had a special friend in that we hadn't seen in the 10 years at our house on the weekend, and he wants to be there and be with us, so he's going a little heavy on the gas pedal. And uh, he's doing pretty good till not too far away from here. Uh, he's thinking just a few minutes and I'll be home and I'll see my friend John. And as uh, he's uh, making his way, he looks in the rearview mirror and what does he see? And I don't know what he said or thought and I'm not going to ask him. But I'm, I, I do know this, that when the officer pulled him over, he asked him, you know, how fast he was going, and he's like a little fast. He's yeah, uh, nine, nine miles an hour over. And then he said, um, where, are you, where, are you, where are you coming from? He said, well, I'm coming from Columbus. He said, what are you doing in Columbus? And he said, well, I'm a, I go to school down there. And he said, you go to OSU? And, and uh, Christian said, yeah, I go to OSU. He says, oh, well, um, you know what? Next time I want you to slow down. I'm going to let you go right now. And uh, so Christian... Breathe a sigh of relief. My pocketbook probably believed a sigh of relief until he could pay me back in 10% interest. And everybody's good. Isn't it interesting? Who you know? Part of the tribe. So it's, uh, it's funny how things work. And it is through the association that we have with Jesus that really is the thing that matters. Now, in any relationship, we know our desire is to become like Jesus. We are, sociologists say, the sum total of the five people that we spend the most time with. And I hope in your life that at least one of those five people happens to be our Lord. That if somebody were to say, who are the people that you seem to spend the most time and attention towards? And you could say, well, one of them is sort of invisible right now, but I sense his presence in so many ways, and that's... That's Jesus, and his presence just seems to have a way of drawing us into God and away from things that are contrary to that. So here's the last thing I want you to know as we look at these realities that Lazarus and the rich man face, and that is when you look back on your life story, you will see it with total clarity. That stuff that you couldn't quite make sense of before, now you have a balcony view of how your life unfolded, and you realize there were some important decisions that I needed to make along the way, and I did not make them. And now I see it. I see it too clearly. And I wish in my torment, when my time was over, that I could at least tell my family. And I wonder what that means for you. Does that mean that God is saying, I'm just giving you a picture of coming attractions, and hopefully those coming attractions include you and my family through my son Jesus. And the way that you do that is just very simple. You just have to surrender your life to him. And in a setting like this, or even outside of it in some way, you have to say, Lord, make me what I need to become in you. I want to be a part of your family in 
Jesus said, I'm, I've been waiting for a long time. And we just, we dramatize that through repenting of, of a way of life that says, God, you're not important, to a way of life that says, God, you are important. And then it begins on our journey as we just identify with him in baptism through death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus is calling you to that if you haven't made that step. He doesn't want anybody to experience a destiny like the rich man did. But rather, he's very, very patiently waiting for all of us to come to repentance. And the clarity that you'll have then, hopefully, is some of the clarity you're seeing right now. And maybe if you have someone in your world that is not really getting close to God and you're not dragging your feet on trying to share what is so valuable to you, then maybe you should just say, I need to make the effort because a lot of things are at stake here. The most important things are at stake here. So maybe that's just a call for each of us to look around and make God's heart known to as many people that he puts in front of us as we possibly can.